Welcome to a special podcast series from Finnegan, exploring some of the hottest topics in the life sciences industry. In this episode, we're discussing challenges around trademarks. Our guests are Finnegan attorneys Brett Hebner and Laura Johnson, both with extensive experience at the intersection of trademark law and the life sciences industry. Thank you both for being here. Let's start with some basic points about the naming and trademarking of new drugs. Generally, how long can this process take and what are some of the biggest pitfalls? So that's an excellent question. This area can be kind of tricky because pharmaceutical companies will have to have names that can be approved by both the Patent and Trademark Office and the Food and Drug Administration. Um, And doing that can take uh, several months. Typically, they would want to have at least four to six alternative names that they have searched and made certain that they're available in all of the geographic markets of interest. So the searching can be quite broad. The clearance searching, even for the U.S., can be somewhat tricky because you want to look at both the Patent and Trademark Office records and the FDA records. So you need to be a little bit wider in your searching than the typical trademark search would be. So you would want to look at, for example, the pharma in use database. You want to look at the physician's desk manual. There's also a very specific algorithm tool that the FDA uses called POCA, which is for a phonetic and orthographic comparison algorithm. And they give under this algorithm each comparison a particular score. And if the score is over 70% of similarity between the proposed pharmaceutical drug name and one that already exists, then the FDA takes a, a pretty stiff stance in comparing them and may end up rejecting. The FDA also looks at potential misleading prefixes, suffixes, or other parts of a proposed mark. They don't want something that suggests a, an indication that it is not true. They don't want to have a mark that suggests a particular dosage or something like that. So the names that are chosen um, as potential candidates need to think about that. Typically, from the FDA perspective, they will review a proposed brand name only after the phase two trials have been completed. And it's submitted at that point in time as part of the new drug application. The FDA usually wants to have two alternative names. So the applicants should submit both of them. They will usually designate which one is their preferred choice. The FDA will typically uh, evaluate the preferred name first, and they'll only go on to the second choice if the preferred name is rejected. And of course, if both are rejected, the applicant obviously can submit more. And how often does the FDA reject proposed names? In 2019, the FDA rejected about 26% of the proposed names that were submitted to it. In Europe, the objection rate was closer, it was higher, usually around 52%. Um, so these rates in, in emphasize the importance of having backup names. As, we said, as I said before, usually at least four to six should be cleared and ready to go by the, the trademark owner. The final FDA approval does not actually occur until the product um, is given market authorization. So this can cause complications, which we can talk about later, but it can lead to kind of a race as to who gets to the market first and who gets the drug name into phase three market. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to tackle the trademark office side of things, which is dealt with in a, in a unique way, in a different way from the way that the FDA approaches things. And, and just by way of some background, pharmaceutical companies have been becoming increasingly active at the trademark office in the last five or six years. While the numbers 
alone don't paint the picture. It's worth noting that there were, in 2020, almost 30,000 trademark applications filed for, for Class 5 goods, a large portion of which include pharmaceutical goods. This is compared to filings for of only 15,000, so about half that um, in 2013. So the, the importance of registration and the strategies for securing registration at the trademark office has certainly been reflected in these increased numbers. So in, terms, in terms of the logistics, while the FDA limits the number of, of filings that can be made with a submission of only one candidate name, the USPTO does not. It's very common for companies to simultaneously file applications for both their primary FDA candidate name as well as the backup name at the same time. In fact, given the timing of these filings relative to the FDA process, it's not unusual for companies to file all of their candidate names, four to six or, or even more, which is likely one, one of the factors that's driving up the number of class five filings that we're seeing. So in the, the number of filings and filings of all of your candidate names, for example, is permitted with the USPTO um, because applications can be filed on an intent-to-use basis, with the applicant needing only state to state that they have a bona fide intent to use the mark in commerce, and, and so the mark does not actually need to be in use or close to use. Pharmaceutical companies are frequently filing their new candidate name applications as intent-to-use um, because they don't have clarity on the regulatory end of which candidate name is going to be approved and, um, and which one can be commercialized. So in, in terms of timing, the U.S. prosecution process from, from application filing until an application is allowed normally takes one to three years, depending on, on hurdles that might arise. And once the application is allowed, the company then has three years to submit evidence of use, which allows it to secure registration of the mark. And this, this evidence of use can be sales of the pharmaceutical product uh, in the marketplace. Um, it also can be use of the marking connection with, with phase three clinical trials. So that's that's an alternative option that can allow a mark to proceed to registration um, in a quicker time frame. So and while not required, when you're looking at timing relative to the FDA, um, it, it's fairly fairly routine for trademark applications to be filed at some point during the phase two clinical process. And this allows prosecution of the trademark application to, to be well underway with, with identification of any hurdles before the, the initial phase three filing, before the initial submission to the FDA. And it could, in fact, drive a company towards one candidate mark over or over another for submission to the FDA based on which one they think they will be able to secure trademark registration for. So when seeking approval for a new drug, companies must navigate regulatory processes at the FDA and USPTO, but those agencies don't necessarily coordinate with each other. How can that complicate trademark strategies? So yeah, there can be very significant problems with the fact that the Patent and Trademark Office and the FDA don't communicate with each other. Specifically, one of the first things is priority. That is, when you have two potentially conflicting pharmaceutical trademarks, which company gets the rights to the mark? One of the problems is that the Patent and Trademark Office and the FDA use different systems to determine that the answer to that question. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office grants the right to a trademark based on either being the first person to file the application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office or the first person to use the trademark in U.S. commerce. The FDA, on the other hand, grants the rights to whoever got the approval for their drug first from the FDA. 
So you can imagine a situation where someone has uh, been the first to file their application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, but was not actually approved first by the FDA, and the FDA grants the right to use the mark to the other company who actually maybe filed later at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So there's there, there can be a, a really significant conflict there. The Food and Drug Administration takes the position that, well, they're not going to wait around to see what the Patent and Trademark Office does. They want to continue to evaluate new drug applications based on a first-come, first-served basis. And they don't want to have to think about the process with respect to where the trademarks are in the Patent and Trademark Office. Given this situation, we still recommend that the pharmaceutical companies file all of their proposed trademarks with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office as soon as possible and not wait to see what happens at the at the FDA. The other major problem with the lack of communication between the FDA and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is that they use different tests to determine whether there's even a conflict between the proposed trademarks in the first place. The Food and Drug Administration uses what is kind of loosely called a sound-alike, look-alike test. And that focuses on preventing dispensing errors at pharmacies or at hospitals. And they tend to examine the spelling, the number of syllables between two marks, whether there's homophones, you know, with similar sounds but different spellings, whether there's potential for handwriting error, that sort of thing. The Food and Drug Administration also places some significant weight on this POCA algorithm that we talked about earlier when discussing the searching for the clearance of trademarks. And they divide these POCA scores on you know, low similarity, moderate similarity, and high similarity. And as I said earlier, if the POCA score is 70% or more, it's high similarity, and they will take a lot of time and be very picky about you know, similar, similarities in spelling, similarities in number of syllables, similarities in uh, uh, the cadence of the marks. And so the FDA is, is more likely to reject those types of marks with that high POCA score. The FDA tends not to compare the nature of the pharmaceutical treatments. You know, they, they, they're concerned that uh, it doesn't matter if they treat completely different things. If you get the wrong drug, it can be a very, very serious consequence. They also tend not to look at whether or not there are other similar marks in the marketplace because that really is not going to help avoid the dispensing errors that the FDA is concerned with. And Laura, do you want to expand on some of those key differences between the analysis done by the USPTO and the FDA? So you're right. The, the PTO analysis differs on, on several key points here. And, and I guess uh, what's impacting or driving many of these differences is the fact that the, the PTO is not as concerned with some of the, the regulatory aspects or the dis- dispensing, just, just some of those kind of more, more technical elements. The, the PTO's sole purpose when they're evaluating a mark um, is whether it's going to be confusingly similar with a third-party mark that is on the register. And in making this assessment, it's certainly less of a less of a formulaic application. There's no no algorithm being applied, uh, no number. The trademark examining attorney is applying what we call a likelihood of confusion test, and this is a multi-factor test that looks at similarity of the mark both from an appearance, pronunciation, meaning of the mark. It, it does look at the similarities of the party's goods. 
Uh, it, it evaluates purchasing sophistication, price of the product, the trade channels that the products travel in. There, there are other factors that can come into play in, in a case-by-case basis. But essentially, each of, each of these factors are considered and given the weight that the examining attorney deems appropriate. In, in one case, similarity of the marks might be, might be a driving might be the, the highest uh, Im- impacting factor, and in other cases, it can be it can be relatedness of the goods or something else. And and so with kind of this this weighing analysis that takes place, it then reaches a conclusion about whether or not it perceives there to be a likelihood of confusion and may may issue a likelihood of confusion refusal based on that. And, and in some ways, this is more challenging than the FDA in that you don't have a figure, you don't have something that's kind of simply guiding you and, and a figure that you know before you, you make a submission. And it also can be more challenging because of the fact that the trademark office is not limited to a universe of other pharmaceutical products. It's not limited to, to what else has been submitted to the FDA. It really has authority to look at, at any products that it might consider to be related, whether or not those products require regulatory approval. In the pharmaceutical context, this could be uh, nutritional supplements. It could be medical devices. It, it could be software applications. So it, it really is up to the examining attorney to determine that universe and make the evaluation. Due to the unique position of pharmaceutical products, trademark rules are sometimes adapted or applied differently. Can you talk about some of those and, and the ramifications? Sure. One of the central tenets of trademark law in the United States is use and the requirement that you use a mark in order to gain or maintain trademark rights. Um, that can be kind of complicated in the area of pharmaceuticals given the long um, sometimes arduous process of getting FDA approval. In most cases, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office will only issue a registration and will only allow that registration to be maintained if the mark is actually being used for the uh, pharmaceuticals while they're being sold in U.S. commerce. So if you actually have not been able to launch your product, one of the concerns is will you be able to obtain your registration or uh, maintain the registration? As I said, given the FDA requirements, the Patent and Trademark Office has slightly adapted its rules to pharmaceutical companies. So first, they're going to consider use of the mark on packaging and labeling for pharmaceuticals that are in clinical trials, the phase three clinical trials, will be considered use by the PTO. So even if the product is not launched, it's not regularly available to most consumers, it's not being sold, that usage in the clinical trial is going to be interpreted by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to be the type of use that they need in order to issue a registration. And that usage doesn't violate any of the FDA um, regulations because when it's being used in the clinical trials, it's not being used for marketing purposes, which is one of the no-nos of the FDA. Instead, it's really being used more for administrative purposes. That is, you know, it's on the packaging for the purpose of organizing the clinical trial. In addition, once the Patent and Trademark Office has issued the registration, you are required at the time of renewal and at the time of maintenance to submit additional evidence that you're continuing to use the mark. The reason for this is many, many businesses start up and then kind of disappear in the first five or so years after they have started business operations. When that happens, because a trademark registration in the U.S. lasts for 10 years, you've got a lot of kind of deadwood registrations for businesses that are no longer active that kind of clog up the register and maybe block others. So the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office requires 
um, you to submit these declarations of use and specimens of use when you're maintaining your registration. But of course, that can be a, a problem um, in the pharmaceutical area if you have been kind of stuck in the FDA application process for, for a number of years. This can be particularly difficult for foreign uh, pharmaceutical companies who are able to obtain their registrations under international treaties, such as the Madrid Protocol or Paris Convention, where they're not quite required to show use before they get their registration, but instead are only required to show use when they're maintaining their use registration. So the Patent and Trademark Office has addressed this problem by allowing these pharmaceutical trademark owners to submit a special kind of declaration called a declaration of excusable non-use. And this means that um, they're still intending to use the, the trademark that they've just registered, but they've not been able to actually get it on the market commercially because they're waiting for FDA approval. And usually these declarations of excusable non-use will be accepted if they include the details of when the FDA application was submitted, where it is in the application process, and when they expect the FDA approval to issue so that the product can finally be commercially launched in the U.S. marketplace. And Brett, when seeking approval for a brand name drug, what do pharmaceutical companies need to know about selecting a non-proprietary generic name for their product? Well, it's very, very important that they have not only a brand name, but a non-proprietary generic name also. The reason for this is, you know, when the pharmaceutical product eventually goes off patent, and uh, generic companies want to uh, create a, a generic version of the product, they have to be able to call it something. If the only thing that's available to them is kind of the brand name, then there's a risk that the brand name could itself become generic. We call that genericide. And then the trademark owner actually loses their uh, trademark rights because the brand name has become the generic term. In addition, FDA uh, typically requires it anyway. So one of the most important things when you're coming up with the proposed non-proprietary generic name is that you usually have done some searching for it and make, make certain that your generic name for your particular version of this does not conflict with an existing generic name or an existing brand name. This can be somewhat tricky because many of the formulas come in families with the similar stems and similar endings and, and uh, suffixes. So it's very important that you have something that maybe has the same appropriate stem, but some additional syllables that differentiate it from other versions of the same pharmaceutical family. Typically, the FDA will also require that when you're submitting um, the proposed generic, that there's some sort of representation that you've searched it and that there are, are no similar marks. Oftentimes, people will actually submit the, the search itself to the FDA so the FDA can see that there is no confusingly similar or look-alike, sound-alike generic names. It's important that the pharmaceutical companies indicate the generic name with the brand name on their materials and packaging so that at the time the generic companies start making a competing generic product, they can't claim that the brand name really is the generic and that they are free to use that generic term to adequately and accurately describe their product. In recent years, we've seen pharmaceutical companies push trademark boundaries in areas like the shape, size, and taste of drugs. Can you both talk about those and what is generally considered off-limits and where there may be some gray area? Yeah, this has become a really hot and somewhat controversial topic. The, the key here is whether or not these features like shape, size, taste 
can actually function as a source identifier. That is, that the consumer recognizes the uh, manufacturer or the, the source of the pharmaceutical just by its shape or just by its color or some other attribute to it. So, for example, Viagra was fairly successful in obtaining trademark rights to the shape of its of its pill because it was an unusual kind of diamond-ish kind of shape. Um, they also got the the engraving on the pill, the the, the B protect. Uh, in those cases, you know, the the shape and the, the engravings were identified by the, the consumer because they were fairly unique. They were they weren't like anything else that was on the market. Color is a little bit different and can be more complicated, but Color sometimes has been considered either by itself or in combination to be a, a protectable trademark in the pharmaceutical area. Viagra had uh, some uh, success in getting the color blue for its pills. Nexium also was able to get uh, a combination, uh, particularly of purple and with some gold stripes on its capsules uh, protected and you know, included a pretty catchy advertising campaign called look for the little purple pill. So once that came out, uh, consumers uh, associated a small purple pill with with Nexium. But there can be a lot of pitfalls in trying to do this. The, the most important thing is that whatever you're trying to protect, be it the shape or the color, it can't be functional. And the trademark law says that these sorts of trade dress, these sorts of shapes, colors, taste, smell, other features cannot be protected if they somehow improve the, the product itself, if they make the product work better or easier to use or cheaper to manufacture. So colors can be problematic if, for example, uh, they've been used to designate a particular dosage or a particular strength. So if you've got a, a whole line of different strengths and each one has a different color so that the consumer associates one color with one strength, that's going to be functional and it's not going to be protected as a, as a trademark. On the, the other hand, if it's kind of random, you know, like purple for this pill, then maybe it's it's going to be fine. Uh, Pepto-Bismol, for example, came up with a, 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 the color pink, but they had a little bit of a problem because some uh, argued that there was a psychosomatic effect that made the pink seem more uh, appealing and patients were more likely to, to take the medicine. So color can be somewhat difficult. Taste and smell is very difficult. It's almost unheard of. For anyone to be able to obtain trademark rights to those features, primarily because taste and smell are almost always going to be functional. They're almost always going to make it easier to take the medication. So, for example, one company tried to get the flavor orange, and the, uh, you know, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office said no, that you cannot register that because the orange taste or flavor made it easier for patients to take the pill, so is you know therefore functional. I think something that's, that's important to note, um, even even in the circumstance where you're not dealing with with potential functionality, that these non-traditional trademarks are not something that that parties secure overnight. While the drug names that we've been discussing are are generally considered to be inherently distinctive and thus immediately protectable, non-traditional trademarks are not. They require something that we call acquired distinctiveness in order to be protected. And this acquired distinctiveness is, is essentially that, that the marketplace and consumers in the marketplace are, are associating of the non-traditional trademark with the drug or, or with, with the owner of the drug, with the pharmaceutical company. And, and this evidence of, of acquired distinctiveness can differ. Some things that are, are key to establishing 
acquired distinctiveness have been sales figures, advertising expenditures for, for the brand, featuring featuring the non-traditional trademark, representative ads, not just for the product itself, but, but ones that may highlight the non-traditional feature, as well as third-party media articles discussing the non-traditional trademark and how consumers may associate that trademark with the pharmaceutical company. And I also, I also just wanted to touch on the, the functionality component and, and how some, some of these function, functional issues are going to, to inherently occur and, and be, be outside the control of a pharmaceutical company. But, but there, are, there are steps that could be taken by the company if it knows it's, it wants to work towards trademark protection for its non-traditional mark. And these, these include not seeking utilitarian or design patent protection for for the non-traditional mark, that's kind of a, a, a red flag that that immediately will, will lead to the the functionality refusal being issued. Um, also, avoiding any advertising or other communications, outward communications that talk about the utilitarian advantages of the trademark, such as Brett mentioned that it, it might make uh, the t- taste of a product might make it more more palatable. For consumers to take, that would be that would be the utilitarian advantage that they're looking at. And then also, I, I think it's important when kind of strategizing about protection for a non-traditional mark to to consider the randomness, if you will, of the selection. Is this something that there's multiple different options and features available, and and it's being chosen um, purely for for this stylist, stylistic aspect, if you will, in putting these together briefly relative to the Next young example that Brett was discussing, AstraZeneca selected these, uh, the purple and gold coloration, seemingly seemingly random. There was no purpose behind the color other than to be, be used as a source identifier. Uh, there was no an inherent psychosomatic effect or improvement associated with the color purple. And it also left open the option for competitors to come along and, and select their own unique color. It, it wasn't kind of tying up a, a market commodity in that regard. And then finally, AstraZeneca's uh, advertisements for the mark heavily featured the the phrase purple pill, but they did not claim any sort of advantage or benefit associated with, with the color. So they, they really strictly used it um, in the trademark sense. And Laura, increasingly, we're seeing life sciences companies extend their brands to new product and service offerings. Can you talk about how companies should think about trademark clearance and protection as they seek to do that to extend their brands? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's something that we're seeing more and more in the industry, that companies are, are moving beyond what maybe traditionally was you know, the, the drug themselves, the pills, injectables, and, and looking at both novel novel delivery mechanisms, things like radio pharmaceuticals, immunotherapies, different diagnostic tools, things that may be more outward patient-focused communication de- devices like mobile applications that patients use to track their dosages or provide patients with information about their, their pharmaceuticals, telehealth services, and various patient support services. That, that give patients educational information, or medical support services, or just kind of a community engagement platform. And all, all of these seem to be activities that, that companies are, are moving into. And in doing that, 
uh, there's there's a couple of key aspects for for trademark purposes to keep in mind. One that, that seems kind of very fundamental is whether what what brands are going to be used to move into these areas. Is this going to be an expansion of the the drug name or a sub brand for the drug, or is it going to be an entirely new trademark? And and depending on kind of how that is answered, will certainly impact clearance and and applications for these brands. Another aspect to keep in mind is kind of a holistic awareness of of these business and marketing strategies and where kind of what what the novel goods and services are that that are on the horizon for companies so they can stay ahead of ensuring their existing brands, whether they be housemarks or drug names, are are adequately protected if if new, new applications broader, broader, covering broader goods and services are needed, and also to allow time for trademarks to be secured for any new brands covering new products and services. And then something just to be mindful, kind of in the um, procedural process of securing these new applications, is that uh, companies often often move faster than the trademark office, and the trademark office's familiarity with, with some of these new therapeutics is still catching up to speed. Um, and so the way the product is described in the identification may require some explanation to the examining attorney of, of what that means and why it's protectable. And also, similarly, on the specimen front, some of these goods and services are not branded. There's, there's they may not be packaging, products not appearing on, on the medication itself, on, on the therapeutic itself. Uh, so the way that specimens are procured and evaluated by the trademark office may may need to change. All right. Well, you've both given us a lot to think about. I want to thank both you, Laura and Brett. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a special podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. Our guests have been Finnegan attorneys Brett Hefner and Laura Johnson. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.